From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the bustling metropolis of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 3 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you have joined us. Before we get started, I want to once again thank everyone who made Episode 2 such a success. We cracked the top 100 in the History podcast rankings a couple of times in the last week. And if our reviews on iTunes and the emails I am receiving are any indication, we seem to be developing an audience. If you are joining us for the first time, head over to iTunes or thewayofimprovement.com and download past episodes, subscribe, or write a review. If you are familiar with the world of podcasts, you know that iTunes reviews are so important in helping us spread the word. Thanks so much. As always, I am with my partner in crime and the producer of the podcast, Drew Hermeling. Drew, the last time we chatted, you were up to your ears in syllabus prep for your course on Native American cultures. I think our listeners are waiting with bated breath to hear how the class is going. We're two classes in and we're already getting into some pretty heavy material. We've been looking at the ways in which anthropology and archaeology have been used in the past to make Indians feel like they aren't part of our society. And so, I mean, that's a pretty highly politically charged issue. And obviously, I have to walk that fine line as uh, a non-Indian teaching about uh, the problems of non-Indians learning about Indians. So uh, it's a kind of a complicated tightrope that I'm walking. Yeah, this course, right, is also uh, an anthropology course, too, or is it sociology? Um, so so you are asking some also some different questions as a historian teaching anthropology. Uh, what's that been like? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have some training in anthropology and archaeology as, be, as part of my preparation for being an ethno-historian, which is a, a subfield of history that uses these other fields as a uh, tool for expanding the archive as we say but it's been a challenge trying to wrap my head around this broad interdisciplinary field of native american studies which ultimately is what this class is drawing upon so it's it's part history it's part anthropology it's part archaeology it's ethnic studies contemporary politics i mean it's a lot of juggling and it's a lot of fun to try to make sense of it, but I'm also learning in the process just as much as I'm teaching. So what are you up to, John? How's the sabbatical going? I'm trying to stay busy. I just turned in a lengthy essay on Protestantism in America for the Oxford Online Research Encyclopedia of American History, which looks like it's going to be a wonderful online resource for teachers and graduate students uh, and some undergrads. Uh, I'm also getting ready to head to George Washington's Mount Vernon for a month to do research for my next book. Uh, so I'm getting ready for that, excited about that. I'll be spending some time at the new library there. Uh, and of course, anyone who reads The Way of Improvement Leads Home blog knows that I am a political junkie. Uh, so I have been spending a lot of time blogging about the political election, trying to point out the links between politics and religion uh, and presidential politics and history. Uh, which, of course, leads us to this episode of the podcast on the presidential primary season. I know, John. I, we continue to be gluttons for punishment here at uh, The Way of Improvement. I, we start off with an episode on the culture wars, and now we're getting deep into the presidential politics. 
Yeah, at the same time, we may be attracting more viewers, but I'm just worried we may also be alienating uh, half of our viewers as well. The country is so divided. But this election cycle has been crazy, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting the the ways both parties seem to be struggling to find an identity, but they're also going about that struggle in really different ways. Yeah, I saw Marco Rubio, uh, I think he was on TV, it looked like he was in a plane uh, the other day, saying that there will be a lot of books written about this election, but there will also be entire classes taught on it. Uh, maybe that's a little bit presumptuous for Marco, but I think he actually may be right. Well, I do have to say this is an election with a lot of historical dimensions. A television reality star and businessman with no political experience a self-proclaimed socialist and the first ever Jewish candidate to win a presidential primary, a female candidate trying to break the so-called glass ceiling, and the son and brother of former presidents who just can't get any traction. Not to mention now a former New York City mayor who's thinking about making a third party run. Yeah, it has definitely been crazy. It's been fun to watch as a political junkie. You know, I can't turn away. I mean, I'm just really uh, kind of eating all of this up. Well, and one thing I have noticed is that evangelical presence in the GOP seems to really be flexing its muscle this election cycle. Am I, am I misreading that or are you seeing that trend as well? Well, I think I think this is nothing new when it comes to the primary seasons in some ways, Drew. Um, you know, when you think about it, if you look back at, say, 2008 or 2012, remember you had in 2008, you had Mike Huckabee uh, winning Iowa and doing very well. You had 2012, you had Rick Santorum, you had Newt Gingrich winning South Carolina. So I think you always see uh, strong evangelical candidates doing well in these um, presidential primaries, especially in these primaries like Iowa and South Carolina, where there are large numbers of evangelicals. Uh, at the same time, you know, usually by the time you get to March or April or so forth, uh, you know, the, the GOP has historically landed upon a more establishment or moderate kind of candidate because they need that candidate to do well in the general election. We'll see if that plays out again. But, I mean, you know, you're, this is the time, if you are interested in evangelicals and politics, this is really the time to be watching things because this is where you have the people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio uh, and Ben Carson making overtly uh, evangelical appeals uh, to voters in that sense. So the, so the January-February primaries are always interesting on that front, and then things start to settle down. At least historically, that's how it works. We'll see what happens this time in terms of whether or not an establishment candidate rises to the top. You know, I remember back in April of 2008 at Messiah College when we hosted a CNN faith forum, and we had Hillary and Barack Obama uh, both there talking about faith issues. Uh, and then we invited John McCain to come, who at that point had had wrapped up the nomination for the Republican Party. But John McCain was clearly a mainstream candidate. Um, but back then it was fascinating because it was actually the Democrats who were talking about religion and trying to make appeals to sort of perhaps progressive 
evangelical voters. Uh, but that was in April. Uh, and so, uh, again, Obama and Hillary were still battling it out. Uh, McCain had enough delegates to win the nomination by this point. Uh, and all of those evangelicals' threats to his candidacy, especially Mike Huckabee, had now gone by the wayside. So this evangelical role in the American political system is a really fascinating one. Well, we're excited to have another voice added to this conversation. We will be joined by Yoni Applebaum, the Washington bureau chief at The Atlantic, who will talk to us about politics and history. But before we talk to Yoni... John, what are some things that those of us who see the world through the lens of historical thinking should consider about this election? But at the heart and soul of the United States of America, the America that I grew up in, in Little McKee's Rocks, where my father carried mail and stuck his nose into everybody's business and brought some joy at a time of triumph and was able to be on the step and cry with them, when they lost somebody they love. History does not usually fare well in political campaigns. Politicians use the past in elections to win votes. This is the nature of our democracy. And it should not surprise us. We are all to one extent or another in search of a usable past. Politicians are just more blatant about it. Over the years, those running for president have been very good at situating themselves in this or that historical movement. Candidates in both parties want to be connected in some way with the legacy of Abraham Lincoln. GOP candidates want to be political descendants of Ronald Reagan. No one wants to be associated with James K. Polk or Andrew Johnson or Calvin Coolidge or Richard Nixon or Jimmy Carter. You may not have noticed it, but history and the past is everywhere in the 2016 presidential primaries. For example, there is the current debate in the Democratic Party over what it means to be progressive. In a few minutes, our guest Yoni Applebaum will talk a bit about this debate over which Democratic candidate best embodies the spirit of the early 20th century progressive movement. On the Republican side, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Donald Trump are all claiming to be the second coming of Ronald Reagan. But for historical thinkers, the most important part of this election so far is the way that the candidates from both parties want to reclaim or restore some aspect of the past. When a candidate makes a claim like this, they are inevitably advancing some kind of historical argument. At the same time, they are suggesting that getting back to such a golden age, whatever that happens to look like, is actually possible. The nostalgia is often palpable. Take Bernie Sanders. He preaches the promise of America. For the Vermont senator, this phrase represents a view of American history connected with taking on the Wall Street interests, providing health care for all, and eliminating big money from politics. From the perspective of the historical thinker, Sanders' campaign raises some interesting questions. Is he suggesting that Wall Street corruption in American politics is a new thing? A recent problem that must be overcome so that we can return to a more democratic moment in America's past? I don't hear him saying this. But if he is, I am not sure his argument has historical legs to stand on. Big money interests have been hijacking American democracy and influencing elections for a long time. Instead, Bernie is the true progressive. 
he seems to imply that history does not help us at all because democracy has never been consistently practiced in the United States of America. My friends, I am the son of a Polish immigrant who came to this country speaking no English and having no money. My father worked every day of his life and he never made a whole lot. My mom and dad and brother and I grew up in a small three and a half room rent controlled apartment in Brooklyn, New York. My mother who died at a young age always dreamed of moving out of that apartment, getting a home of her own, but she never realized that dream. The truth is that neither one of my parents could ever have dreamed that I would be here tonight standing before you as a candidate for President of the United States. of America, and this is the promise we must keep alive for future generations. On the other hand, Bernie is fond of invoking his immigrant parents who came to America in the pursuit of a dream. He has said on multiple occasions that they did not achieve that dream, but he, their son, who became a United States senator, did make it. In some respects, Bernie wants to restore or reclaim a time when it was possible for the son of immigrants to run for the presidency of the United States. This, in some ways, is his usable past. But it is the GOP candidates who have mastered the language of reclamation and restoration. When Ted Cruz says that he wants to reclaim America, he means, I'm guessing at least, in the most immediate sense, returning to the days before Barack Obama messed everything up. Of course, this would mean returning to the era of George W. Bush, a two-time Republican president that no GOP candidate, with of course the exception of his brother Jeb, wants to mention on the campaign trail. And tonight is a testament to the people's commitments, to their yearnings to get back to our core commitments, free market principles, constitutional liberties, and the Judeo-Christian values that built this great nation. But when Cruz and even Rubio and Trump talk about reclaiming America, they're also taking us deeper into the American past. The message of these candidates is driven by a curious historical trajectory. The trajectory starts with the apparent Judeo-Christian and limited government convictions of the Founding Fathers, leaps over the next 200 years of American history, and of course ends with Ronald Reagan. And then there is someone like Ohio Governor John Kasich. In his speech after the New Hampshire primary, Kasich became nostalgic for an older America, the America of his mailman father, who was one of the many workers responsible for the fabric of face-to-face -face community in a small western Pennsylvania town. 
Kasich called for a more compassionate, empathetic, and caring America, a place where people sit on their front porches, give each other hugs, and love their neighbors. Kasich reminds us that nostalgia is a powerful thing. It can make us long for lost worlds. The Ohio governor's small-town upbringing may have been idyllic, but historians know that not everyone growing up in the 1950s can relate to this kind of childhood. The history of the 1950s, as opposed to nostalgia for the 1950s, is much more complicated and complex, dark and oppressive, for those who were not fortunate enough to participate in Kasich's safe, white working class world. Nostalgia is so powerful because it usually contains kernels of truth. Neighborliness and the strengthening of the bonds of local community are good things. So is the American dream that Bernie Sanders preaches. So are the ideals of political liberty that our founding fathers held so dear. So, in some cases, is limited government. All of these things will make us a better society. But invoking the past to get us there will always be problematic because for every Western Pennsylvania working class neighborhood, there was a black neighborhood in Alabama dealing with segregation. And for every family who experienced the American dream, there was another family who did not. For all of the virtues of the Reagan era that Republicans like to extol, there was also Iran-Contra, the cutting of social programs, and the raising of taxes in 1983. For every founder who defended liberty, there was another caught up in the ugly legacy of slavery. And let's not forget that early 20th century progressives had a horrible track record on race and immigration. Just ask Woodrow Wilson. This is the difference between history and nostalgia. But I don't see our political candidates learning this lesson anytime soon. Let's face it, nostalgia works much better for those with the primary goal of getting elected. Thanks, John. And I think that is a great lead-in for our conversation on the role of historical thinking in the process of writing about politics. And so we are joined by Yoni Applebaum. He is a writer, journalist, and social and cultural historian of the United States. He is currently the Washington Bureau Chief at The Atlantic, but before joining the magazine, he was a lecturer on history and literature at Harvard University and previously taught at Babson College and at Brandeis University, where he received his Ph.D. in American history. We are entering the world of politics this week on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. And with that in mind, uh, we are very happy to have the Washington Bureau Chief of the Atlantic, uh, the magazine and the online edition, with us, Yoni Applebaum. Good to have you with us, Yoni. Well, it's nice to be with you, John. Great. Well, let's start with a little biography, because you have a very interesting story about how you got into uh, journalism and working in politics with The Atlantic. Uh, perhaps some of our listeners already know this very interesting journey from American history graduate student to Washington bureau chief at The Atlantic, but I'm guessing because of our listenership that most of them don't. So maybe you could start off with a little biography. Tell us about how uh, you made this transition uh, to the position you're in now. Sure. Well, I like to think of this 
less as an inspirational story than a cautionary tale. <laughs> I was uh, working on a doctorate in American history at Brandeis University and enjoying that tremendously. Uh, but like a lot of graduate students, I, uh, from time to time, uh, was a little bit distractible. And one of my favorite ways to waste time when I ought to have been dialing into archives or writing up my research was to go to a blog that The Atlantic was running at that point by a writer they'd just been on, uh, a guy named Tanahasi Coates. Uh, and uh, I'd never read anything quite like it and started to comment in the comment section, uh, which, again, is, is not something I would <laughs> recommend <laughs> to your listeners. Uh, comment sections are, are not usually the, the brightest parts of, of the Internet, but, but this one was a little different. So you so you started commenting on Coates's uh, uh, blogs. He was a relatively new blogger at the time. You mentioned. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't Tanahasi Coates yet. I assume. <laughs> well, he was the same guy, but <laughs> exactly didn't right. Yet but have, he, uh, quite the recognition he was due. He'd been through three jobs in in journalism and and uh, uh, was was trying to make ends meet and, and had come to to work for the Atlantic on, on the strength of some of his his magazine length writing sure. and. He had created this blog, which was a really unusual space. And I, I should stress this because it's it's something important about the Internet as a space. He treated it like his living room um, and would cut off conversations, uh, not just if they grew uh, abusive or, or met some arbitrary standard of obscenity, but if somebody wanted to derail the conversation by by moving off subject uh, or if somebody hadn't seemed to understand the point. He wanted to control the conversation and make it a, a space that was safe for readers of all backgrounds to come and engage thoughtfully with each other. And I very quickly figured out that I was far from the most intelligent or best educated person in the space. Uh, there, there were academics and journalists, people in government, um, and, and uh, you know, common workmen in, in Baltimore. One of uh, Pete from Baltimore was one of uh, the regular commenters and, and one of the sharpest, too. Uh, so it was really people of all backgrounds um, who were engaging with each other and, and leaving uh, comments in that space. And, and that was a very rewarding thing to do when I ought to have been doing my own doctoral right, work. Right. How do, so how do you end up from a commentator on a popular blog to actually working for The Atlantic, who is the host of that blog? Yeah, well, Tanahasi reached out to me. He had some questions for a piece he was working on at that point, I think, for The New Yorker and wanted to see if I could answer it. Uh, he had uh, intuited that I was a historian, I, I think, because uh, I went on entirely too long in my comments and, and <laughs> ended up to reference sources a little bit too much. Um, and, and so he put two and two together, which, which perhaps it's... it's uh, it sounds flattering to have a writer reach out to you and say, are you by any chance an academic historian? But it probably doesn't reflect well on my abilities as a writer. And uh, he then, um, in, in the generosity of, of spirit that, that marks the guy, went to his editor and said, I've got someone in my comment section who I think uh, ought to be writing for us more regularly. And Bob Cohn, who was the editor of TheAtlantic.com at that point, reached out. And, and for several years, I became a regular contributor to The Atlantic as I finished my doctorate, uh, took on teaching jobs at, at Babson College and, and then at Harvard. Great. And then and then obviously you must have done a nice job uh, with the pieces. They must have liked the pieces because uh, you eventually became the senior, a senior political editor and now you're running the Washington Bureau. So how did that transition take place? Well, I, I it may not say great things about the, the judgment of the senior editorial team. <laughs> I was a, a lecturer on history and literature at Harvard, enjoying that uh, appointment tremendously. I had wonderful colleagues there and, and very bright students and and uh, was 
uh, hitting the trail and giving uh, campus job talks uh, as I thought about next steps. And um, in the middle of that process, I got a call out of the blue from the Atlantic uh, who encouraged me to, to come and talk to them and, and think about what it would mean to, to switch careers entirely. Um, and uh, my initial reaction was not only no, but heck no. Um, <laughs> but uh, we talked it through and, and I came to see it uh, not so much as a chance to change careers. Uh, I was very happy in academia but rather as a chance to take my academic calling and translate it into a new sphere of action. Uh, and that seemed compelling to me, and uh, I, I think I somehow succeeded on selling them on that vision of the role as well, uh, and, and that's what I've been trying to do for the past year. Yeah, that's, that's, a, great, that's a great story, um, and a great sort of lesson, vocational lesson uh, for historians as they think about all the things that one might be able to do uh, with a history degree. Now, for our historians who happen to be listening, uh, I recently heard you speak uh, at the American Historical Association meeting in Atlanta last month. And one of the phrases, I've heard you use this phrase before, but it really struck me this time around. Uh, you advised all of those academic historians in the room uh, to, dare, quote unquote, dare to be a historian in public. And as I listen to your biography here, it's obviously clear that you've taken your own advice. You have in many ways dared to be a historian in public. But can you elaborate on this idea about, about the role of history in the public uh, and how does this fit, this whole kind of daring to be a historian in, in, the, in the public, uh, fit with the kind of stuff as an editor that you are looking for uh, at The Atlantic? Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting transition because I started as, as a writer and, and thought about history from that perspective. And now, uh, you know, I get a, a dozen or more pitches every day and um, think about history from, from that perspective, too. And... The common thread there is um, that historians have a tremendous amount to offer to the public conversation. Uh, not just historians, but, but uh, members of the public who, who engage and think about history, um, be they journalists or uh, if they hail from any other profession or if they're undergraduates. Um, the submissions that stand out are the ones which take the unique strengths of historical thinking and translate those into the written word. Um, too often, I think, when historians go out into public, they lack the, the confidence of their convictions. They spend years becoming deeply well-versed in their subjects, which they love with a passion. And then instead of going and sharing that passion and drawing on the wealth of sources that they have uncovered and, and the scholarly interpretations that they have woven uh, those sources into, uh, they instead move to the 800-word op-ed um, frame it around a contemporary event right. as if that were somehow the significance of the claim uh, and uh, offer a, a summary of, of their findings rather than the evidence that, that supports them. Um, and what struck me is, as I read many of the submissions, even from very eminent colleagues in the academy, was the extent to which these were things that I, teaching uh, undergraduates, uh, would have flunked. Yeah. If somebody submitted a paper to me that, that didn't include very much evidence that um, tied a specific historical claim about the past in, in some sort of weakly bridged uh, manner to some sort of contemporary event uh, that made grand sweeping generalizations off a narrow evidentiary base, um, the, these are things that we as, as historians and scholars train our students not to do, that our students learn not to do. And then when we go and engage with the public, we argue from a position of authority. We are historians and know this stuff. Uh, if you don't trust us, go and read our book, rather than um, from 
physicians as scholars. Uh, here's what the evidence says, and, and here's uh, what it might possibly mean. And the tragedy of that is that this is a moment when the public is uniquely primed and able to engage with more substantive work. We're no longer bound by some of the uh, technical and uh, financial constraints of, of publishing that, that have reigned for, for the past couple hundred years. Uh, we are divorced from the column inch as, as the, the basic unit. Uh, it's possible to write a greater length. It's possible to link to sources directly from pieces. Uh, it's possible for something written on an individual historian's blog to go viral and reach an audience of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions. Um, that's a, a should be a very liberating thing for, for scholars uh, who seek to engage the public. Um, but it requires training uh, ourselves with new habits of mind. Yeah, I, I find that, if I could just follow up on that, I find that, I'm, I'm with you on that, but you obviously are not too high on this sort of traditional 800, 700-word op-ed. You even mentioned this in Atlanta. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's such a pressure now to kind of write in these short bursts, right, in which evidence is not necessarily, you can't unfold all of your evidence and, and unpack that all and show all of your evidence. Uh, how do we... You know, what are the kind of venues? I know this is what you're trying to do at the Atlantic, right? But but what other venues are there uh, that that you know the the old long form historical writing that's accessible to the to the public? Uh, you know, where where are these other venues? Well, what's wonderful is is that there are many more venues and and many more lengths. Uh, I, what I mean to I don't mean to disparage the, the 800 word op ed. It it has a role, um, right. <laughs> primarily selling books, but. Yeah. It, it is just one form among many, and we now have the liberty to pursue many forms and to think about uh, the appropriate form for a particular piece of work, uh, the appropriate form for that work, um, the audience to which it's addressed. And the internet allows things to cross over too. So, so some things may belong in a scholarly journal, and that is right. great. Um, I rely regularly on scholarly journals, as, as do all other historians. Um, some things are can be taken, sometimes the same uh, evidence, the same arguments, and translate it into uh, something for a broader audience. Um, and, and then it can run uh, on a website or, or in a print publication. Um, there are blogs, like your own, that have built scholarly communities and communities of uh, curious and engaged and educated readers, um, often uh, scoped to some particular sense of community that binds uh, the members of that audience together, although not always. Uh, and, and they can uh, unfold gradually over time. So sometimes the 300-word claim with very little evidence works really well situated within some sort of an ongoing conversation when it wouldn't work on the viral web where it travels independently. Um, so, so these are challenges. Uh, these are unfamiliar forms in many cases, things that graduate schools don't train scholars to create and that scholars themselves may not be comfortable working in. Um, but for both scholars and readers, uh, there's tremendous liberty that flows from the ability to take a particular set of claims or, or piece, a particular set of evidence and then figure out um, what forms it's best suited to and to experiment and experiment freely and boldly uh, because it's very hard to know in advance which of these venues will work best for a particular set of evidence. You've now made a bold claim about the value of evidence-based, long-form historical writing, and so I want to give you an opportunity to present some evidence. Uh, tell us about some recent historically-themed pieces you have published at The Atlantic in the last year. So one of the nice things about The Atlantic is 
um, the ability to both publish lots of writing, which is pegged to current news events, and we certainly do a lot of that. Um, but the other thing we do and, and do regularly is um, move off the news cycle and give our readers things that um, are, are a little broader in perspective. Um, and I can give you a, a couple examples of, of both. This last year was a year in which conversations about race and, and justice uh, dominated um, particularly uh, through the, the spring and summer into the fall. Um, at one point I picked up uh, an essay, I don't remember how many words, five, 6,000 words that came from uh, the historian of, of the Civil War and Reconstruction, David Blight at Yale, um, and worked with him to shape that uh, for a broad audience. And it really resonated. It was on the many endings of the Civil War and, and the ways in which the Civil War is a struggle still being fought. Um, that's a long-form piece uh, informed by a scholar's life's work. Uh, that, And a scholar who, who I should say, did, didn't need me uh, or the Atlantic to reach an audience uh, whose own work uh, has already um, won every accolade I think that the the Academy uh, has to bestow. Um, but but for the overwhelming majority of the readers who encountered it, these were still ideas that were unfamiliar. These were still pieces of evidence uh, that were novel, uh, and so that was a really satisfying thing to be able to to help him put out there. Um, in a very different vein, something that was slapped together over the, the span of. Um, God, it numbered in hours, not days, um, was a piece uh, that Tanahasi Coates wrote um, in the middle of the controversy uh, about the Confederate flag in, in South mm. Carolina. It's one of my favorite things that we published in the last year um, because almost the entire thing is a collation of quotes from Confederate declarations of secession. Wow. It is, in some sense, a primary source reader. Um, and when you can put that out in front of an audience that eventually numbered in the seven figures. Wow. Um, and just the power of historical evidence framed with context and with a specific set of claims. But it was the raw words themselves that he uh, excerpted there that really made that, that post dominate the conversation for a few days. Um, that was evidence to me that there are different genres of, of historical writing that, that can really have an impact online. Um, it was very different than the beautifully written uh, uh, carefully constructed uh, essay that, that David Blight had, had allowed us uh, the privilege of running. Um, and, you know, I've, I've tried to do this in, in my own work as, as well, um, whether it's in response to news events. There was uh, an incident at a pool in, in McLaren, Texas uh, this last summer, um, and, and I thought of a, a book I'd encountered in graduate school on, on pools and segregation. Um, it was written by a, a fellow alum of my program and, and drew on that work to try to explain why uh, pools are are often contested sites. Uh, it, the ability to go back and, and get that kind of context, I think a lot of journalists in particular uh, have the habit of reaching out to certain kinds of experts on stories. Uh, you can call the, the local um, political commentator when something is breaking. Uh, you can call a, a social scientist uh, or, or a research scientist uh, for comment on a story. And, and not enough journalists are in the habit when they encounter something of getting on the phone with a historian who's, who's spent their entire career studying uh, the questions uh, and delving into the evidence and asking them for, for that kind of context. And so when I'm able to, it's, it's not just a, a question of finding historians who can write, it's also a question of our um, taking upon ourselves the responsibility of reaching out and identifying scholars who have something to add to the public conversation and giving them the opportunity to do that. 
So I think it's fair to say, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, that if you want to read some really good history, head over to The Atlantic uh, and, uh, and, and see what you can find, see what Yoni and his colleagues are putting out over there. Our episode is actually uh, devoted to the presidential politics. So as we sort of wrap up our conversation, uh, again, what better person to talk presidential politics than uh, someone who uh, writes about politics, runs the Washington Bureau of the Atlantic. Uh, For those of our listeners who want to know how to think about this election cycle historically, uh, what advice what advice can you offer? I know that's a huge question, but what as you have been monitoring the presidential elections, both the GOP and uh, the democratic side, uh, what are some of the what are some of the big historical stories or in what ways is history sort of shaping uh, some of the debates that are going on uh, as both of these uh, parties try to choose their nominee? You know, there's two ways to use historical evidence to, to illuminate a race like this. One is um, to go back and, and uh, identify uh, the, the features of, of this race that seem salient and, and then find historical precedents to bolster that interpretation. Right. Uh, the way I much prefer to do it is to use history to, to unsettle my, my expectations. Um, I, I think there's a real temptation to um, look at moments like this and to say, Donald Trump is just like, and you can fill in your own blank there based on your own political predispositions, uh, or uh, Bernie Sanders um, is a latter day whatever. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure always what's gained by those analogies. Uh, the differences may be more uh, salient than the similarities. Um, but I do think that this is a moment, uh, an election where history really has an incredibly valuable role to play. Um, History is disjunct. Sometimes it's radically disjunct uh, to the extent that one uh, tries to understand a political situation by building a, an evidence-based model, feeding in a lot of variables and generating a prediction. Um, well, that you'll get humbled pretty regularly. And, and this is a, a year when a lot of pundits who have relied on the studied indicators of the past, um, the number of endorsements, the early polling leads, the um, the, the, the appeal to certain elements of a party's base have, have been baffled. Um, whereas I think a lot of historians who have looked at other moments of, of political disjuncture and, and disruption uh, recognize echoes. It doesn't allow us to say who's going to win either of these nominations, uh, but it does allow us to understand that we're watching uh, a period of genuine tumult and, and unpredictability. Um, that said, uh, I think there, there are some elements of this race that, that really do intersect with ongoing historical conversations. I was uh, stunned and amazed uh, over the last 48 hours to watch Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton sound like they were sitting in, in Daniel Rogers' seminar debating <laughs> the many versions of progressivism and That's what, right. yeah. what progressivism even means. That's um, a debate that antedates the actual coinage progressive. Sure. Um, it's a debate that, that hasn't been resolved in the past 100 years, and I don't expect to be resolved in this race, but it's sort of amazing to watch it play out again. Um, I think that um, populism is something which has come up again and again. Uh, it's a recurrent force in, in American political life, um, but certainly candidates are drawing on past populist movements, including the populist movement, um, for inspiration in this race. Uh, commentators are turning to it to try to understand something that they have not seen in their own lifetimes. Um, and so uh, it's not just progressivism. It's it's the, the movement that uh, immediately antedates it. Uh, populism, I say this not only as a, a historian of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, um, but but I think that that's genuinely a, a, an interesting echo. Um, but there's also uh, lots of, of small issues on which the historical context uh, is enormously salient. 
Um, we see that with the debates over immigration and American identity right. uh, and religious pluralism. We see it with debates over religious freedom and how that intersects with other kinds of, of freedoms uh, in, in American society. We see it with debates over the proper role of the judiciary. We see it when people look at uh, sclerosis in Congress and think about dysfunction uh, in our national history. Um, when you see somebody make a claim like this is the most dysfunctional Congress we've ever had, uh, and, right. and you think about Preston Brooks getting caned on the floor of the Senate. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I think Joanne Freeman at Yale has counted something like 140 violent incidents in the three decades leading up to uh, the declaration of the Civil War uh, within the United States Congress, in the Congress itself. Um, th then our current partisan vituperation sort of pales in comparison, um, which is not to say it's, it's not important, but, but I think that sometimes context like that allows us to better weight our claims, to better consider dynamics and, and think about implications. Um, so in lots of ways, large and small, I'm struck every day by how valuable historical context is to understanding this moment. So, so last night, uh, Bernie and Hillary were really uh, engaging in a amateur form of historiography, right? As they were debating over the meaning of progressivism. Well, they were. I mean, they really yeah. were. And both at the literal level of debating progressivism and what it has meant and, and what it means. But, but also, and I think this is really interesting, they were reviving debates that, that raged 100 years ago. Right. So it's not right. just debating labels. Um, you know, the progressives themselves debated whether regulatory action was more important than antitrust. Could you, were you better off having a handful of big firms you could tightly regulate or, or uh, a distributed economy of, of lots of small firms, which could be bad actors, but which could, would limit the damage of each of their individual bad actions. That's a debate that, that um, recedes from view uh, in the middle of the 20th century. But, uh, you know, the actual issues they're debating uh, are ones that historians still debate. Um, and have practical policy implications. And so it was, it was really, um, I think it's very hard to understand this race without uh, any degree of historical context. And it's and something then, I regularly hear from other people who are covering it too. And then on the GOP side, of course, uh, everyone is wanting to reclaim or restore something right? <laughs> that, that has been lost. So again, this sort of appeal to the past that we're seeing over and over again. Well, our time's just about up here, but it, so in closing, one final question, and I'm, I'm guessing you're not going to answer it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, is uh, a political editor at The Atlantic allowed to make a political prediction about the presidential race? And if so, what is your prediction? Well, I certainly am, John, but this is where my PhD in history comes in handy. I <laughs> do a lot better trying to explain what happened in the past than trying to predict what came in the future. Um, I, I think what I, what I can predict is that uh, both of these races are, are going to surprise people, um, that uh, the steady patterns and, and useful indicators of the past just aren't worth that much in 2016. Uh, and, and I would, I guess, caution your listeners that if they hear anyone make a bold prognostication, there are enough predictions out there that some of them are going to come true. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's the historian's fallacy, right? So, so uh, rather than commit the retrospective fallacy, uh, I think we should all acknowledge that um, this is an uncertain and unstable race. And uh, it will be grist for the mill of future doctoral candidates to figure out what it all means.
Very, very well played, Yoni. Um, a true historian here. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with Yoni Applebaum. Uh, he is the uh, the uh, chief of the Washington Bureau of the Atlantic. He has a PhD in American history from Brandeis University. Uh, Yoni, thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast, and it's been good talking with you. Great to talk with you again, too, John, and thanks for all that you do to bring history out into the public sphere as well. Yeah, think about this, Drew. We have had the executive director of the American Historical Association. We have talked to an author of a book that is really sort of reshaping uh, our understanding of the culture wars. And now uh, an incredible interview, I thought, with the Washington bureau chief of one of America's uh, best and historic uh, magazines. So, I mean, we're off to a good start. Yeah, and I have to say, I'm just so impressed to, to meet yet another public intellectual who is applying historical thinking in innovative ways outside of the academy. Yeah, Yoni is just an inspiration to me. Uh, I was on a panel with him uh, two or three years ago at a conference about public speaking to the public, um, and I've followed his work since then. He is just doing amazing things at The Atlantic in sort of advocating for history. Like I said in the interview, head over to The Atlantic, bookmark The Atlantic, whatever you do, because there's really some good history being published there. It kind of reminds me of the days when these kind of historians as public intellectuals, uh, people like Richard Hofstadter and others, were kind of writing articles uh, in magazines for popular audiences. Um, I don't know if Yoni would say that's his vision, but it's to me it seems something akin to that. Yeah, and I'm just happy to have an, yet another example to prove that all of the time and effort that you and I have put into our own historical work is not culturally irrelevant, as some people are so quick to say. Well, Drew, I don't think this election is going to wrap up anytime soon, but I think it's time for us to wrap up here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode on politics. I hope you come back in a couple of weeks for our next episode. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his support. Original music is by Overholt. And many thanks to our guest, Yoni Applebaum. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia.